This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to the Great War Channel podcast. And today I'm very excited because we're going to a place that for our long-time listeners, uh, long-time viewers, pardon, um, is very familiar and it's a place uh, special with a special place in my heart uh, called Pshemish. Indeed. It's a word very hard to pronounce. Uh, the secret tip I got from uh, some of our Polish fans was uh, that uh, the, the first mistake that we Westerners always make is to assume that it's a word with uh, three or four syllables, even though it only has two. So, Przemysz. It's the place, it's, it's an Austro, old Austro-Hungarian fortress town, like with a, for, with a system of forts surrounding it and it was the place where the longest was it the longest siege of the war or just one of the longest as far as i know it might well have been the longest but it was definitely up there yeah so it was when we covered the war week by week it was something that popped up quite frequently um, and it was also the place uh, where we did our first road trip to it's also the place where we visited an Austro-Hungarian themed restaurant, which has had a fantastic schnitzel. Um, so we can ha- I can hardly recommend that uh, if you ever want to visit the place. Uh, some of the forts uh, you can actually um, visit. Uh, I think two of them are uh, available for people to just uh, explore by themselves. Um, but I'm not the one talking about it today. Who is? Yes, today we have as a guest uh, Alexander Watson, whose uh, brand spanking new book is called The Fortress, The Great Siege of Przemysl. And he's been kind enough to join us today. And I'm very excited to talk to him because uh, Przemysl is also kind of a, a cool story for me long before I joined the team at The Great War because of my own unlimited nerdiness uh, about World War I. I traveled myself to Przemysl just for fun, as one does, and toured the forts with with my couchsurfing host, uh, Gosha, who was the first couchsurfing host I ever had. And her father made me an absolutely delicious soup. Sounds we have both have very pleasurable culinary experiences uh, in a place with an otherwise pretty grim history. That is true, but an absolutely fascinating one that actually goes beyond just the siege in the war. But there are elements there that help us to understand the region and what then ends up happening there later, uh, which is even grimmer than the siege, perhaps. Exactly. So without further ado, enjoy 
the interview with Alexander Watson. Um, do visit Shemish for the history, stay for the food, <laughs> and definitely check out his book because I don't think there are many English uh, sources particularly about this siege actually. So we were quite happy that he was enthusiastic about coming to our podcast. I'm very happy to welcome our guest today on the podcast. We have with us uh, Dr. Alexander Watson, who's professor of history at Goldsmiths University of London and important for our purposes today and a source of great excitement for me personally. He is also the author of The Fortress, The Great Siege of Przemysl. And I mispronounced that right off the start, folks. It's Przemysl. The, the L is somehow silent, but maybe we'll solve that mystery in the course of the podcast. Um, but the book has been a great success. It was shortlisted for the British Army Military Book of the Year Award. It was a BBC History Magazine Book of the Year. It was a Financial Times Book of the Summer. And it was a finalist for the Gilder Lehrmann uh, Prize for Military History. So I think I got all of that hardware right. Uh, this may or may not have been the first take for that. I won't, I won't uh, divulge that publicly. But thank you so much, uh, Alexander, for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's really exciting to be here. Great. Um, then take us behind the scenes a little bit for this, uh, for this book, which has been so successful. Um, how did you get interested in the siege of Przemysl? And what did you... Then when you decided to write the book, what did you want to achieve with it? What was the objective behind it? So I, I got interested in, in the in this story because it's such a great dramatic story. And it's so important for the First World War, for the outcome of the First World War, and ultimately as well for what happens later in the 20th century. The story of Przemysl isn't well known outside, well, actually outside Przemysl. Uh, it's, uh, but, but Przemysl is a city in southern Poland, southeastern Poland, just on the Ukrainian border. In 1914, it was uh, a city in the Habsburg Empire, and it was also the site of the Habsburg Empire's main fortress in the east. And the book is about a uh, siege that took place there, the longest siege of the First World War, 101 days in total. Uh, really dramatic siege, which changed the course of the war, which which uh, really laid the foundations to make this a long war rather than seeing a quick Russian victory in 1914. And also, and this is, this is a key part of what the book is about, I wrote the book because I wanted to show how things that we tend to associate with the Second World War, with the 1930s and the 1940s, really brutal fighting, aerial bombardment, strategies of starvation, uh, ethnic cleansing and genocide. All of this didn't begin with the opening of World War II. It didn't begin with Stalin and Hitler, but actually you can already see this beginning in 1914. So the book, is, the book itself is about, about this massive battle, the longest siege of the First World War, but it's also about it's also about Europe's dark 20th century. And it argues that 1914 is our year zero. This is where it all begins to go horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah, and this idea will be familiar to uh, perhaps some of our listeners uh, who, are, who know the German term Urkatastrophe, right? The original catastrophe of the 20th century is quite common in German historical literature. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the fortress? Why did the Austrians build it? And what was it supposed to do in the event of uh, war in the East? 
So the Austrians, the Austrians built it because uh, they were worried about about Russian invasion. Uh, that's the that's the short answer. The slightly longer answer is is that Galicia, which was the northeastern province of the Habsburg Empire, butting up against Russia, was surrounded on two sides by the um, uh, by Russia. Had a massively long border. It was really, really, really difficult to to defend. A really difficult place to defend. There weren't mountains along the border. There weren't really many rivers along most of the border. So for that, I suppose the question was: How do we keep the Russians out if 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 we do come to blows with them? And what they came up with was, and this is we're talking late late uh, 19th century, 1870s, what they came up with was, we'll build, we'll build a fortress. 1870s were a time where fortresses were going up right across Europe, um, key part of military strategy, denial of area strategies for, for armies across the continent. And Przemysl was chosen. Przemysl was a pretty small town, um, but Przemysl was chosen for a number of reasons. The first was that it was on the last high ground it was on the last high ground before the uh, Russian border, um, so that was that. That was one reason. It was a defensible place. The, behind it are the Carpathian Mountains, which form the frontier to Hungary, and it screens them. And it's in the foot, the foothills of those mountains. Second reason that uh, they built it in Przemysl was that it was slap bang in the middle of Galicia. And the idea was that we don't know if the Russians come, you know, they could come from the north, they could come from the east, they could come between. It's, it's, it's difficult. The only way we can really defend this is to have a big, strong force in the middle of, of, of the province and then be ready to sally forth in whatever direction is necessary in order to take the Russians on and defeat them in detail. And Przemysl was ideally suited for that. And the third reason, and maybe by the 1870s the most important, is that Przemysl, and this, this, this is really crucial in the First World War, Przemysl is a key rail node. It's, it's a rail hub. It's a communications hub. The main, uh, Galicia is a pretty economically underdeveloped place. Uh, and it has one main railway going east to west and also down into the south to Hungary. And all of them, that, that east-west railway, Przemysl is slap bang in the middle of it. And it also splits off south uh, at Przemysl as well. So Przemysl controls the key communications. And of course, as, as I know you know, and as, 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 as our listeners will know too, 19th century, early 20th century armies are crucially reliant on railways to get anywhere. They have to have railway communications to get places. So for those three reasons, Przemysl was considered to be the ideal place to build a fortress. And through the 1880s, uh, the Habsburg army spends a lot of money um, building, uh, building this defensive installation. Maybe, the, I guess, the other thing that I should say for listeners as well is that a 19th century fortress, late 19th century fortress, doesn't look like a medieval castle. It's really very different from that. Uh, it's much, much bigger. And the city becomes an organic part of the fortress as well. Fortress is designed to have 85,000 men garrisoning it. In the event when the First World War breaks out, it gets a garrison of 130,000. So this is, this is you know, an army-sized set of troops. And to supply an army-sized set of troops, you need um, labourers, you need... Uh, uh, and you need civilians. You need civilians baking bread, helping mend infrastructure, doing all sorts of different things. So the city itself becomes a huge army base. The population expands massively to supply the needs of the army in peace. And by 1914, what you've got is uh, a ring of about um, 
30 miles in circumference, 48 kilometers, uh, a ring of forts around the outside of the city. Uh, roughly roughly 35 forts, something like that, around the outside of the city, with telegraph and telephone wires going in, uh, a, a road, a ring road behind it, and roads going into the city, another smaller set of ring of fortifications, which don't really matter, directly around the city, and then all of the stuff that a garrison needs, command centres, barracks, bakeries, food magazines, powder magazines, all of the paraphernalia that a 19th century army requires to fight, um, all dotted in and around the city. Yes, I mean, it's, it's no joke. And this is, a, is obviously a hint, the, the size and the complexity and the, the time that, and money that went into it is a hint, uh, perhaps, as to why the siege uh, took on the character that it did. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how that siege worked out? How did, how did that, the longest siege of, of the First World War end up uh, playing out over the course of fall 1914 and up to March uh, 1915? So the 19th century is, late 19th century, early 20th century is, 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 is a scary place. And in, in the early decade of the 20th century, uh, actually rather like our own age, International tensions are rapidly rising. International trust is at a low. Uh, by 1914, there's 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 a spark that's required to set off great power conflict, and uh, and that great power conflict starts with Austria-Hungary. It starts with, as famously as as all of us know, the assassination of uh, Franz Ferdinand on the 28th of June 1914. The Austro-Hungarians uh, declare war on Russia, uh, which is a big backer of Serbia. On the 6th of August, it's clear that Russia is uh, going to enter the war. And fighting Russia is really, really frightening um, because the Russian army, uh, the Russian peacetime army is larger than the Austro-Hungarian and German peacetime armies combined. To make things even worse for the Austro-Hungarians, most of the German army, it's, it's one ally, uh, is, has headed over to the, uh, to the west to fight the Belgians and the French. And it's the Austro-Hungarians' job in this coalition to attract the bulk of the Russian army towards it and to hold them off long enough for the Germans to be able to defeat the French, turn around, bring their armies eastwards and make one war-winning blow in conjunction with the Habsburgs against the Russians and, and win the war for a, for, a, for a great Germany and great Austria-Hungary. That's, that's, that's the idea. As all of us know, things didn't work out quite like they hoped. So the Austro-Hungarian army goes into the attack in 1914. We, we tend to think about the French army in 1914. It's, it's famous as, as, you know, for its red trousers, for its going forward, regardless of cost, um, for the cult of the offensive. But the Austro-Hungarians have the same mentality as well. You don't defend, you know, you don't stand on a, on, on a river line or on a hill and, and, and shoot people down coming towards you. You go forward, you attack. The Austro-Hungarian army is, is, is skint, uh, before 1914. It's very, very short of money. Uh, it doesn't have the money to invest in uh, modern artillery to match that of the Russians. So rather than thinking, well, you know, maybe actually we need to be a bit more careful about being belligerent about going to war, Konrad von Hutzendorf, who is uh, the chief of the general staff, the de facto commander of the army, he simply develops a, a tactical doctrine which says, ah, 
We don't need the artillery. We can go forward without them. No problem. Aggressive, determined infantry, says the infantry tactical manual of, uh, of, of, of the pre-war years for the Austro-Hungarian army, can defeat the enemy without artillery, he proudly argues. And that's what they attempt to do in 1914. Uh, they go forward in the north, uh, they, they head kind of northeast into Russia. The idea is to, to attack the Russians before they can fully mobilise and bring their strength to bear. But the Habsburg mobilisation takes so long that they don't get the advantage. Um, they go forward uh, um, in the northeast, they go forward in the east. In the northeast, they have a few minor victories before, before they get pushed back. But it's in the east of Galicia and what today is Western Ukraine, uh, where the disasters really happen for them. They go forward expected to meet roughly similar forces. Goodness knows why. The intelligence was, was very, very poor. Instead, they meet troops which are double their number. And uh, the, uh, the Austro-Hungarian troops in the east are pushed back first to the city that we now call Lviv in Western Ukraine. At in 1914, it's more usually known by its German name of Lemberg or its Polish name of Lvov. It's very, this is a very, very ethnically mixed place. And um, as the Russians push forward in the east, uh, not only does the Austro-Hungarian eastern armies begin to crumble, but the northern ones start to crumble too. Uh, there are these huge battles equivalent to anything that we know about on the Western Front, and and actually more bloody, um, or certainly at least as bloody. Uh, and the Austro-Hungarian army is forced back, and on the 11th of September, Conrad, Chief General Staff, is forced to order a general retreat. The army by this point in the East is, is literally disintegrating. Uh, the troops have lost huge numbers of officers. They're exhausted. They've been in action for weeks without sleep. And the discipline is fraying. This is, this is the first chapter of my book is called The Broken Army. And it really is like that. Um, the, the, the discipline has gone. Men are throwing down their weapons and running uh, westwards cross country, trying to, trying to escape this, this massive Russian force that is lumbering westwards. Uh, the leadership isn't there. Um, the supplies aren't there, the men are hungry. And added to that, uh, cholera and typhus, which had begun to affect the Russian army, had spread to the Austrians as well. So this is an army which is frantically uh, heading westwards, trying to escape from, from the Russian victors and leaving this trail of wounded and sick and dying behind it. And on the 14th of September, in mid-September, this is... This is the, the book, uh, the, the first chapter of the book starts on, on this old clock tower that's in the centre of Przemysl, imagining what you would have seen on the 14th of September, September if you'd been looking down, looking east, and you would have just seen everywhere this mass of, of, of broken, exhausted units intermixed with um, army wagons spanning the road from ditch to ditch, everything exhausted, everything thing thing ruined and and scarred and 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 torn and shattered struggling westwards just desperately trying to get away and this is this is the fortress's moment this is this is the point at which the fortress becomes which Shemish becomes the decisive point of the war uh, because this if if the russians had come forward quickly if Shemish hadn't been there this is the russians chance to utterly defeat to destroy the Austro-Hungarian army. 
The Austro-Hungarians get a bad press for all sorts of reasons in the, in, in the literature. Sometimes they're just missed out as if they weren't important. Um, sometimes they're, they're, they're condemned as being incompetent, which certainly their leaders were, um, and, and no use, and it's the Germans that carry them and so on and so forth. But actually, the Austro-Hungarian army fields 8 million men during the First World War. There is no humanly possible way that the Germans are going to be able to fight what they call a world of enemies, yeah? a coalition which, which uh, has 70% of the world's population, uh, uh, two-thirds of the world's um, economic potential, GDP. There's no way they're going to be able to fight that for four years without the Austro-Hungarians. To write the Austro-Hungarians off to forget them um, is, is a huge mistake in understanding this war. And if the Austro-Hungarians had fallen in 1914, if Przemysl had fallen in 1914, that would have been it for the Germans as well. We wouldn't be talking about the Great War, war 14 to 18. You would have only been able to run your series for two years, probably. <laughs> it would have been over in 15. Yeah, but that would have been it without Przemysl. Um, so this has an effect very directly for us as well. Yeah. And, 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 and so it's Przemysl standing there in the way of the Russians. This is what lays the foundation for a long war. And folks, just uh, for our listeners out there, that kind of drama and passion uh, comes through in the book as well, which uh, which makes it a real a real pleasure. Um, so once the Russians have got the fort surrounded and they've pushed the Austro-Hungarians back past it, how does how is the fort then able to hold out for so long? So the fortress. So maybe we need to talk a bit about about the garrison firstly. Um, when when the field army goes back through it, and it goes, uh, I think another 120. I've got the the, the numbers, but 120 kilometers, uh, 70 miles, something like that, further westwards. That's how far the field army retreats away from the fortress in order to just get a breathing space, get some distance, get a chance to restore discipline, restore order, refill the ranks. It puts a lot of distance between it and the fortress and the Russians. Um, and that's mid-September. And Conrad tells the fortress commander, all, whatever fighting press the, the Habsburgs had or not, they have the best names. There is no doubt that their generals have the best names. You know, Conrad von Hutzendorf, even the Germans don't have people with, with that sheer kind of comic 19th century, you know, if you're going to call it, yeah. And, and the, the fortress commander is um, Hermann Kusmenek von Berg Neustädten, um, known to everyone as Kusmenek. Um, Thankfully. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and his garrison, and, and he's told by Conrad, the fortress is told, ordered 2096, uh, issued in mid-September. Um, the, it says the field army is treating and the fortress must hold at all costs. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's, that's what the order says. So Kuznick is left with the fate of the empire in his hands. And he's not confident. I mean, he's not confident for two reasons. The first is the fortifications. The fortifications, as I said, were built in the, um, from the 1880s uh, up until the turn of the 20th century. The problem with the fortifications though, is that they're obsolete by 1914. There's been no investment in them for the last 10 years before the First World War. Uh, 1880, 1914, it doesn't sound so long, but in terms of technological, military technological development of the late 19th century, it's light years away. And the, the Russian, Russian intelligence on the fortress talks about this as, um, as, uh, as antique, 
That's that's how it looks to the Russians, because between 1880 and 1914, you've got massive innovations. You've got um, the advent of uh, much larger artillery, of quick firing artillery. Um, you've got uh, the advent of um, steel shells firing sm- uh, fired with smokeless powder. Um, and the result of this is that you have guns which have much more destructive potential and that can be fired at a long way away. In the 1880s, it make a thought kind of makes sense because it protects it, it, it protects the um, uh, it, it protects an area and you you have a, a stable gun platform with protected munitions which you can shoot at, uh, at artillery. By 1914, there have to be different strategies in place and there are different strategies for building forts because um, because the enemy can't even be seen. Um, the, the, the opposing artillery is firing from six or seven kilometres away. It's firing behind hills. Um, and and these, a lot of these 1880 forts are simply sitting ducks. On top of that, they're armed with the original uh, armament that they've got. A third of the fortresses' armament dates from 1861. Um, and it fires black powder. So you have these, actually, they're quite big cannons, some of them. I mean, they are kind of more cannon than artillery pieces. And they fire these, you know, they fire some pretty big rounds. And what happens is there's this huge dramatic burst of black smoke yeah, and a bang. Um, and the, the, the projectile comes out and, and there's black smoke everywhere. You know, the garrison can't see anything for the next minute or two because, because they're shrouded in smoke. Um, and then there's and then a tiny little puff when this, this projectile actually doesn't hit whatever it was meant to hit because of course they're massively <laughs> inaccurate as well. And of course the huge black smoke, the huge plume of black smoke directs any Russians in the area to exactly where it's been fired from. But as the forts are sitting ducks anyway, that doesn't hugely matter. So that's, that's one reason for Kuzminik's apprehension. The other is the garrison. And the garrison is great. I had a lot of sympathy for the, um, for the garrison. You know, everyone else kind of writes about these 18, 20, 25 year old soldiers on the Western Front, you know, Storm of Steel, the guys who, who took part in the German Spring Offensive of 1918, the young men who, uh, you know, didn't, didn't worry about risk. And one of the nice things about, about uh, from the point of view of the historian, not from their commander, uh, about the garrison Przemysl is that they are wonderfully unheroic. Uh, they're Nearly all men uh, in their um, in their very late thirties or early forties. This is literally a dad's army, um, and you know, fathers aren't aren't generally people who are prone to vain acts of heroism. These are these are men much more likely to be found at the bottom of the trench praying than at the top, going you know over the trench storm over the top sort of storm steel like uh, style. Um, as well as that, they're drawn from uh, from right across Central Europe. The Habsburg Empire was a huge place, population of uh, over 50 million. Um, it covered, what did it cover? It covered what today is modern Austria, modern Hungary, but also uh, modern uh, Czech Republic, modern Slovakia, parts of Poland, parts of Ukraine, parts of Italy, parts of what today is Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia. Uh, it had a, this, was a, this was an empire that had 11 official languages. Um, and and there were more unofficial ones as well. Um, well the, the most notable example is, is Yiddish, um, language of Orthodox Jews, which wasn't official, but of course many, 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 many people spoke it. And um, and the empire drew from nearly right across the empire. It drew its garrison from, from nearly right across 
across the empire. It was more of a babel than a bulwark. Uh, it was, uh, it, 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 there were Hungarian units there who, if you look closer, turn out to be composed of either Slovaks or Romanians. There are Austrians who actually don't speak German, but Italian. Um, there are Polish units, there are Ukrainian units. Um, the officers tend to be either German speaking or Czech speaking or Hungarian speaking. And that's another kind of interesting dynamic of this. Uh, there's a there's a huge gulf between the officers and the men. One, one of the things I do in the, uh, in the book is um, focus down on one particular Galician regiment, a regiment raised in, in what's today's southern, southern Poland. And uh, the men are all, all peasants, some Polish speaking, some Ukrainian speaking, some Orthodox Jews. And when the officers come, they come from 500 kilometers away. And it's quite common for First World War armies to have a distance between officers and men. That's actually the norm, but it's usually a class difference. With, with the Habsburg Empire, there's also this huge cultural and linguistic difference as well. Uh, the, the officers frequently simply have no idea what, what their men are saying. Um, it's like, you know, it's, it's like when, when they come in in early August this year, it's like they've landed from Mars. These are, you know, these are big city slickers from the from the most developed Western parts of the, of the empire, you know, suddenly coming into these pious peasants and saying, OK, you do this, you do this. And there's massive incomprehension at all levels, culturally, linguistically. And obviously, it's not necessarily a good recipe for fighting prowess either. So, yeah, so Kuzmanek isn't. Kuzmanek is, uh, has, has good cause to be anxious. The, the Russians encircle the fortress. At first, they don't, um, they don't intend to fight, but then uh, they get a change of command uh, on, the first of, on the 1st of October. Uh, and the commander is, maybe luckily for my narrative, the one Russian general uh, who everyone has heard of. I mean, who's that going to be? Do they get Brusilov after that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah sure. Brusilov, yeah. yeah? Yeah, Brusilov. Of 1916 fame, of, of, you know, victor against the Habsburg Empire fame. And of course, you know, Brusilov is, is the one Russian general that, uh, that people have heard of two reasons. One is he had this great victory. And two, he wrote his memoirs, which were translated into English, which made sure that everybody in the 1920s knew that he had had this great victory and that he was a military genius. Yeah, He doesn't come across so well in 1914. Um, and Brusilov recognises that this is that Przemysl is the key to winning the war in the East. And he says, we've got to attack it. And he, he, he brings up uh, better troops to the blockade army, um, active divisions full of young soldiers, better equipped soldiers. Uh, the Russians are generally better equipped than the Austrians anyway, and um, uh, and he uh, and he starts uh, and he starts preparing for a storm. And the way that the siege works out is there's there's actually there's actually two clear parts of it. There's the first siege, which goes from mid September, about the twenty second, twenty third of September, through to the eighth, uh, ninth of August. Uh, sorry. October, that is, um, so 23rd of September to, to the 9th of October, um, when the fortress has is stormed unsuccessfully by the Russians. There's then uh, a brief period of relief where the Habsburg army comes in, uh, regains the fortress, uh, attempts to resupply it, but in the process of resupplying it, it uses a lot of the fortress's food stocks and munitions to try unsuccessfully to get further forward, fails, has to retreat again, and the Russians close the ring at the start of November, and then and then uh, lay the uh, put the city under siege until until the twenty second of March, nineteen fifteen. That's uh, that's that's the overall course. And for the, the way the book is organised is 
the first siege, yeah, with Brusilov in charge, where this fortress is formed, is the really crucial one for the outcome of the First World War. But the second siege, the later one, is more revealing for the course of the 20th century. I talk about how the, the Chemish is kind of, it's like a weather vane for the harsh winds of the 20th century. It shows us what's going to happen. It shows us that actually what we think of as, as, as you know, trustees of the 30s and 40s, they actually begin in 1914. And the second siege is very useful for understanding that. Yeah, and one of the things that you do in throughout the book is draw on individual experiences, individual testimonies. Um, give us a flavor. What's what is the experience of the siege like for the men, the dad's army, um, the the multilingual, multi-ethnic dad's army trapped in that great fortress for for months on end. Yeah, so the human experience was uh, was was really important to me when I was writing writing the book. A lot of times, uh, books on the Eastern Front they focus on the Russians, they focus on the Germans, but actually a key part of this area is that it's multi ethnic. I've already talked about how multi ethnic the Habsburg Empire is, how how multi ethnic the garrison is, and yeah, so I I, I had I had I, I looked at memoirs from from Poles, from Ukrainians, uh, uh, Daris as well, and um, from from Hungarians. Uh, in terms of the experience, I guess there's two things that come through for, for, for these older soldiers who are fighting. The first is the sheer shock of war breaking out. These men aren't professional soldiers. They are, they are, especially the officers, the officers are you know, middle class, they're officials, they're academics, they are uh, business owners. Um, uh, they're lawyers, they're, they're, they're people who had kind of stable bourgeois lives. And, and for sure, before 1914, you know, you could see the storm clouds gather, maybe even a bit like our own era. You could imagine there could be threats. You could see there were um, superpowers competing with each other. But the idea that, that the world you knew could fall apart, that, that a cataclysm of, of, of global war, of world war, of European war could... could could begin, it just wasn't possible to imagine. People saw it, but no one really believed it. And and that comes through. That that so there, there's when when the Russians stormed the, the fortress in October 19, 1914, the key the key point is around a fort known as Fort One One Wisichka. And the the commander in charge of that fort is a, a guy named Istvan Bielek. He's a he's an, a reserve officer in the Hungarian side of the army, of, of the Habsburg army. And a month, uh, a couple of months before all this happened, before he's suddenly fighting active Russian troops armed to the teeth, he was a lawyer in Budapest. And uh, Maybe we've kind of got a little bit of taste of that with the pandemic. I mean, my, my, my book starts out, the, the first words in it are sometimes things we think of as, as, as certain that we imagine as, 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 as sure and stable can collapse with shocking suddenness. And we've kind of seen a little bit of that ourselves over the past two years where, or the past year where the, where the unimaginable happens. But if we take that experience and multiply it a thousandfold, that's where these middle-aged men of, of, of 1914 were. And of course, these were guys who were really invested in the peacetime world, especially the officers. They were people with jobs, with careers, with families. Um, and the war blows that away, especially in East Central Europe, where 
borders move, where armies rage, where there's ethnic cleansing, where 1918 as, as, uh, to 23, as, 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 as you're now talking about on the channel, sees massive ethnic conflict right across the region. All of that stability is gone. It's, it's, it's destroyed by the First World War and with it, people's lives as well. And I don't think people in the West recognise that, how, how profound and traumatic and awful and destructive this war was in East Central Europe. And don't forget, this is, this is the part of Europe, part of the world, which is most ravaged in the 20th century. This is only the beginning of what's going to happen in the 30s and the 40s. And looking at these middle-aged guys was, was, was interesting because they are the most invested people in that world of 1914. And seeing that destroyed before their eyes really comes through in their diaries in this siege. The other thing that comes through is, is the hardship of the siege, um, especially the second siege where food runs out. We, get, we see strategies of starvation on a massive scale in the Second World War, but that begins in the First World War. And one of the earliest places is at Przemysl. And you can trace the, the deprivation, the hunger and the despair through those awful, awful months. And it's, I mean, it's really, really moving. It, it, it's, it's, it's really moving. And because these are in so often in languages that we don't know so well in the West, that, 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 that aren't acceptable, um, it felt really important to bring those stories to bring those stories to to, to readership, and they make for and and given for us from standpoint of twenty first century, given that we know what happened later on in nineteen eighteen, uh, in 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 the nineteen thirties, and in the nineteen forties, you know they're really moving because and really awful because this is a war that they don't know but we know that 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 precious stability that existed in nineteen fourteen, it's gone forever. And from 1914, from Przemysl onwards, things are only going to get worse. And reading those diaries in hindsight, reading those memoirs in hindsight, it just, um, yeah, it was, it was, it wasn't always an easy book to write. Uh, no question, I, I can, uh, I can definitely see that um, from the book itself, as well as the the whole change in your demeanor and and tone of voice when you know when we switch to this uh, topic in particular. Um, but let's let's go a little further down that road and maybe you can flesh out a bit more for us one of the important aspects of the book that goes beyond the the battle and the siege into a bit of the bigger picture of history in this in this region you've refer, you've referred to it several times now but maybe uh, tell us a bit more about what the siege and that period of time in the First World War in this region can tell us about the even more harrowing history of the region later on. I think that we could, we could talk about we could, we could talk about the violence of the fighting, we could, we could talk about the act of starvation, we can talk about uh, starving out of the city, we can talk about how um, civilian and combatant status kind of gets blurred because civilians are, are no less effective than soldiers by by the siege. But one of the points that I, 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 I make, I think the most important point is the connections with ethnic cleansing between uh, 1914 and the 1930s and 40s in exactly this area, 
in exactly this this is the area of of, of the Holocaust. Um, it's uh, next to uh, the Holodomor, Stalin's genocide of of of, of the Ukrainians in the thirties. East Central Europe is the area of of the world, the region of the world, which suffers most in the first half of the 20th century. And in 1914, the, let's say, let's start with 1913. 1913, the Habsburg Empire was actually a pretty tolerant place, especially the Austrian side of it. The Russian Empire wasn't. Uh, famously, there were, there were um, anti-Semitic pogrom, uh, pogroms in Russia in the early 1880s, and then again from 1903 until 1906. So the, the Russian Empire is, is, is Europe's most autocratic empire. And one of the things I never get from sort of readings, sort of, especially Western-centric readings of, of the of, of the First World War is kind of, you know, the Germans are often presented as the baddies, the British and the French, because they're arguably more democratic, are kind of the goodies. But the British and the French are allied to Europe's number one autocratic, oppressive power in the East, Russia. Russia, Imperial Russia, Tsarist Russia is a horrible, horrible place. Um, and Tsarist Russia's main objective in the First World War, one of its key objectives, is to take over Eastern Galicia, is to take over uh, what today is Western Ukraine, and uh, in including as well the uh, most easterly parts of Poland with Przemyslin. Russian leaders claim that this should be part of a great Russia to the Carpathians, that this is naturally Russian land. And they argue this on the basis that uh, Ukrainians, uh, they argue, are part of the Russian people. The the Russian elites don't use the term Ukrainian. They will call they call the Ukrainians little Russians, uh-huh. just great Russians. A term, incidentally, which Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin, has uh, also used uh fairly recently too. I mean, we can draw some links between 1914 uh, and uh, the uh, the conflict in eastern Ukraine uh, from 2014 and continuing today as well, and Russian ambitions in Ukraine. Um, and the Russians come into Galicia, not only intending to conquer it, but also when they're there, uh, they develop a frighteningly modern plan of ethnic reorganization of ethnic exchange. Um, Galicia is a con- is a region in the Habsburg Empire which has a lot of autonomy. It's run by conservative Poles. It, there are about 8 million people living there, about uh, nearly 4 million are um, Polish-speaking, 4 million are Ukrainian-speaking, uh, and around 800,000 Jews. Uh, but it's the Polish, Polish conservative elites who run it. And the Russians come in, not only intending to conquer this, uh, this land, but also to change its population fundamentally. The Polish elites are, are, are going to be removed from power. Uh, they have no business there as far as the Russians are concerned. Ukrainians, uh, there's, Galicia is a bastion of Ukrainian nationalism, and, and for the Russians, that's very threatening. And so when they come in, they target Ukrainian nationalist elites, they imprison them, they arrest them, uh, and they start programs of conversion, religious conversion, uh, to the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, they imprison uh, Ukrainian uh, um, Greek Catholic uh, religious leaders. And one of the parts that they're willing to play a long game, part of the program that they have as well is to turn Ukrainian children literally into little Russians. Uh, 
as, as, as they call them. So the idea is to um, introduce new schooling, no Ukrainian speaking schooling, Ukrainian children must learn in Russian from this point on. It's a programme of cultural ethnic cleansing that, that they're intending, accompanied by violence, especially toward uh, Ukrainian nationalist elites. The worst uh, fates that were reserved for Jews, um, there's no place for Jews in this new Great Russia to the Carpathians, as far as the uh, Russian army is concerned. The Russian army has a, a, a very racist view of, of, of the world. It's, it's, it um, uses ethnic stereotypes to, to try and guess how peoples that it conquers will behave, and it's viciously anti-Semitic. When it enters Galicia in August 1914, from the beginning there are pogroms, uh, against Jews, disorganized pogroms. And then that's, that, that's, that's not organized, but it's sanctioned by the Russian high command or it's, 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 it's permitted. It's nothing, nothing is done to the people who, who attack Jews. And over time, uh, through 1914 and into 1915 during the occupation, the Russian, uh, high command, uh, start attacking uh, the Jewish population uh, of Galicia economically. They start making preparations to expropriate land owned by uh, Jewish landowners. Uh, and ultimately, they start deporting Jews en masse. And somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 Jews in the province, in the occupied areas, are forcibly moved either eastwards uh, into, on, onto the fringes of the province of Galicia or into, into Russia itself to get them out. And that's partly because of security concerns. The Russians claim that Jews are spying against them, that they're hostile, but there are elements here of genuine ethnic cleansing as well. And this is part of a trend which is going on in the in the Western Russian Empire too, where, um, where, where uh, Jews and Germans as well are being forcibly removed eastwards from these, from these sensitive areas, from these areas that the Russians want to secure or annex. Um, and my point in the book is that uh, is is that ethnic stereotyping, um, racist views, and actions based on racist views, really violent actions, uprooting people. Um, this isn't a product of the 30s or the 40s. This starts in 1914. We're not at genocide yet. There is bloodshed, but there isn't there isn't genocide in 1914. But the act of physically moving whole populations. This is something that we do see. And when Przemysl is, is captured by the Russians on the 22nd of, of March 1915, a month later, posters go up in the city ordering the Jews to get out. And the Russians move forcibly 17,000 Jews. They cleanse the city of Jews and move them eastwards. And this is a story that I don't think we know about. I'm not sure that anyone up until the book really, really appreciates or, or, or knows that. There are some great historians working on this uh, uh, in, 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 in the US and in, in, in Britain, but in the wider public, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that we are so aware of this. And uh, of course, the the point is, as I as I started off this interview by saying this conversation by saying is is that once you know that, once you recognise that. Um, Already in 1914, there are modern programs of ethnic cleansing based on ethnicity, based on race. Then the 30s and 40s don't look something so exceptional. They don't look like they're solely the products of totalitarian dictatorships. This is a history which goes back before Hitler, before Stalin. It goes back into, uh, into a clash of, of, of European 19th century empires. And I think that changes our understanding of the story. And I think, if anything, it makes... It makes the story of what happened in the 20th century more complicated and, and more scary.
Yeah, I think that's uh, a, an important piece of the legacy of the First World War and one that then takes another step in those immediate post-war years that we've been steeped in, obviously, on the, on the channel. And then again, uh, tragically, even more tragically after that. So perhaps on that somewhat uh, sinister note, I want to, you know, thank you for coming on today. We've run the gamut from, you know, old school monarch led empires and the guns of August to foreshadowing uh, the Second World War and the coming of all these and the, let's say, some of the seeds of, of all these uh, the terrible things we associate with a later period in history as well. Um, before we part ways for today, if, and I hope we have, if we've piqued the interest of our listeners enough that they'd like to get their hands on a copy of the book, The Fortress, where can they best do that? So I think the answer to that is all good bookshops. Amazon has it, uh, Barnes & Noble have it, it's, 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 it's all over the place. It has two slightly different titles. If you're in the UK or Europe, then the title is The Fortress, The Great Siege of Pshemish. And if you're in the US, then, uh, and it's published by Penguin, if you're in the US, then it's published by Basic Books, and the title is The Fortress, The Siege of Pshemish, and the Making of Europe's Bloodlands. But uh, it's it's been reviewed in a in, in a lot of paper. It's, it's, it's won awards, and bookshops seem willing to sell it. So please take a look, write to me, tell me what you thought of it. I, I love to communicate with you guys as well. And I, I, I really hope you enjoyed listening to this taste of it. All right. Well, I certainly enjoyed this conversation. Um, I don't think I've had as much fun with a book on the Eastern Front since Norman Stone. And that's not an exaggeration. So thanks again, Alexander, for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me too.